I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is the voice in your head an asshole? So is mine, and there's something we can do about it. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving on I-77 South through North Carolina with no one but my GPS for company. And for fun, I started speaking my inner monologue out loud. So we're doing an episode about the voices in people's heads. And the question is, how do we open it? I mean, one option is I could open it with actually my inner dialogue, right? Like what's bouncing around my head. That's too on the nose. How about our producer, Michael's inner track coach who just berates him relentlessly? Michael's so funny when he riffs on that. Could be a possibility. So I asked Michael to record himself on his next trail run through the mountains of Santa Fe. Everyone's going to think I'm crazy talking to myself. I could just pretend I'm on the phone. That's normal, right? Running out of breath talking on the phone. Good morning. No matter how calm or poised you look on the outside, you spend a lot of time talking like crazy on the inside. Turns out the voice in our heads yaks it up about half the time that we're awake, and it can speak at a rate of 4,000 words per minute. You know those voice actors who read side effects at the end of a drug commercial? It's like that, but on speed. I have to say, though, that the experience of getting inside Michael's head was kind of amazing. I started to wonder, what if we could eavesdrop on other people's secret conversations? But who do I know who's brave enough to share their interior monologues? The answer came to be in a flash. Our team, the fearless collection of characters who make the next Big Idea Club possible. The first person kind enough to share her inner voice was our director of member happiness, Emily. She hit record on a voice memo as she lay by a pool in Guatemala, where she lives. This feels pointless. I don't know how to record my authentic inner voice. But as she lay there, enjoying the sunshine and muttering into her iPhone, something interesting happened. She started looking around, making casual observations. I wonder if I'll ever have a parrot as a pet again. Probably not. And then, out of nowhere, the voice in Emily's head took a surprising detour. I can't wait to be vaccinated and not have to worry about this as much. I wonder when more people are going to be vaccinated here. And it's mostly the Sputnik vaccine from Russia. I feel like there isn't a lot of transparency with that vaccine. But a lot of countries are using it. Hopefully it's fine. Should be fine. Maybe I should slip over. Doesn't that sound familiar? The sudden shift Emily made, cross-cutting from observing the present to worrying about the future. It's certainly how my inner monologue unspools a lot of the time. It turns out our minds aren't good at staying in the present. We dip back into the past. We imagine what might happen in the future. And we do this time travel with such ease and regularity that scientists call it our default state. It cropped up repeatedly as members of our team recorded their inner thoughts. I guess they're thinking about what to make for dinner. I wonder if I should go to the store. Oh yeah, <laughs> I need Kleenex. 
Okay, I'll go to the store on the way. That's Marquina. She runs marketing here at the club. I'm pretty worried about my COVID vaccine tomorrow, not gonna lie. It's just, every few minutes I get anxious about it. I don't want to be knocked out for any amount of time. <sighs> this intersection always takes so long. <sighs> go bus, go. Nah. I'm thirsty. We've all had moments like that, when anxiety sneaks up on us while we're making other plans. And listening to Marquina reminded me of something else. Our inner voice never really falls silent. And I don't think we want it to. Because without it, how would we make sense of the world and our place in it? There's one more clip I want to play for you. Milo, are you about to poop or what? This one comes from Jeremy, our senior editor. He recorded himself while taking his family dog for a walk in Naples, Florida. Come on, man. <sighs> Whatever, dude. This is why, again, I'm telling you, man, like, like being a dad just seems hard. Like, I feel like being a parent is a constant state of saying, hey, don't do that, like over and over again until you die. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say that, you know, my parents did that with me exactly, because obviously I was a perfect child. But I mean, for other people who have like really, you know, devilish hellion children, um, like that sounds really tough. And maybe I'd be one, you know, maybe just like through some, you know, accident of fate or genetics, I would end up with a kid that I just really couldn't stand or that couldn't stand me. I mean, that's totally possible, right? Maybe I'd be the problem here. Maybe it'd be a great kid and they just wouldn't want me as a dad. First of all, Jeremy, I think you'd be a great dad. Second of all, thank you for sharing this recording because it's an excellent example of what my guest today, Ethan Cross, would call chatter. When negativity overtakes introspection, that's chatter. When your inner voice turns into a worry-filled vision of the future, that's chatter too. When it gets stuck dwelling on an unpleasant emotion, chatter. Ethan writes, when the inner voice runs amok and chatter takes the mental microphone, our mind not only torments, but paralyzes us. Luckily, you can take back the mic. Ethan, who teaches psychology at the University of Michigan and runs the school's emotion and self-control lab, has spent his career studying how we talk to ourselves. The result is a riveting new book called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Ethan says that by using a variety of simple tools, you can change the conversation in your head. And if you do that, you can alleviate your anxiety, bolster your confidence, and teach that chatterbox upstairs to pipe down. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Ethan Cross, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you've written a book about the voices in our heads, which is something you've been studying for decades. In theory, this might make you an expert in controlling these voices, but you open the book with a story of a time that the voices in your head got out of control. Do you want to share with us that story? Yeah, happy to. So um, a little over a decade ago, I had published a paper with my colleagues that had gotten some national attention. I had gone on TV, and this was a very exciting moment. You know, I, my, my mom finally... Finally was proud, right? Here I go. And a couple of days later, I showed up in my office and there was a 
a really unpleasant, threatening letter in my mailbox. And I really entered a state of, of terror, of real fear. I had just, my wife and I had just had our first child. And, you know, when I went to the police, they gave me this very reassuring advice. Things will probably be fine. Just make sure that you drive home a different way from work each day in case someone's following you. Rufus, you have to understand, I live four blocks away from my office. So, you know, you do the permutation. <laughs> there are only so many ways to get home. This is not reassuring at all. <laughs> there are only so many ways. And so for a few nights, I regressed into adolescent protective mode and got my Little League baseball bat and stood guard downstairs, pacing the house, making sure no one was coming to get us. And so chatter, which I talk about in the book, when your thoughts take hold of you rather than the other way around, it certainly struck for a couple of days and it wasn't pleasant. And, you know, I will say this, yes, I run a lab on self-control and emotion. And yes, I've been studying these voices in our head and how to control them for the past 20 years. I think I do know a little bit about it, but that doesn't mean I'm perfect at doing it. One of the things we've learned in the course of our research is that a truism of the human condition is that we are much better at advising others than we are following that advice ourselves. Yeah, And I think that experience I had a little over 10 years ago was a perfect illustration of that. Even though there were tools I was aware of, I was temporarily blinded to them. Well, we're very glad that you survived that period for among other reasons, because you've written a really extraordinary book that I think is gonna impact a lot of people. And let's, let's just get right into it. Why don't we start with big idea number one? Introspection is a double-edged sword. Beginning around the time that I was five years old, my dad used to tell me to go inside whenever I experienced a problem. The idea was that by turning my attention inward to introspect, I'd be able to find solutions for whatever issues I was struggling with. Growing up, I followed my dad's advice, and by and large, it served me well. Then I got to college, and I took my first psychology course, eager to learn about what science had to say about what I had spent so much time doing growing up, introspecting. That's when I stumbled on what I think is one of the great puzzles of the human mind. On the one hand, I learned that there was indeed value that people derived from introspecting. Some scientists thought that the ability to do so was one of the defining evolutionary advances that distinguished human beings from other species. On the other hand, I also learned that more often than not, People's attempts to use this tool when they're struggling often backfires. Rather than make people feel better, introspection often leads them to experience something else. Chatter. Chatter is a term I use to refer to the cycle of negative thoughts and feelings that turn our capacity for introspection into a vulnerability rather than a strength. We worry, ruminate, and catastrophize rather than think clearly in ways that allow us to problem solve, innovate, and create. Why does this happen? Why are some people able to benefit from introspection while other people get stuck when they do the exact same thing? And equally important, once you find yourself experiencing chatter, what can you do to bring your internal conversations back on track? Those are the questions that I've spent the past 20 years trying to answer. Chatter tells a story of what I've learned. When you think about it, I mean, just the fact that we talk to ourselves is not to be taken for granted. I mean, it's kind of weird when you st step back and think about it, that we have this little voice that we either engage with or ignore, and it carries on on its own. How do you think this evolved? And what benefit 
does our inner voice give our species? Well, you know, I, I think the inner voice is in some ways a superpower, right? So what we're talking about in technical terms with the inner voice is the ability to silently use language, to do many different things. At one end of the spectrum, you have the common experience that people often see in the movies, which I think is the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the voice in your head, which is that that running commentary or monologue, in some cases, a dialogue that we have with ourselves when we're trying to figure out our problems. And I think that experience rings true to many of us a lot of the time. We go over our experiences to try to problem solve, and language is a tool that can help us do it, right? We we experience events and then we try to create stories to explain our experiences and the inner voice helps us do it. But it also helps us do lots of other things that I don't think people are often aware of. So the inner voice is part of, of a mental system that we call working memory, which is a basic feature of the human mind, right? It's our ability to keep information active in our head using words. The inner voice helps us do it. It also helps us do things like plan for the future and simulate. So before giving a big talk, I'll go over what I'm going to say in my head. Sure. Then I'll actually hear what the obnoxious audience member is going to ask me, and then I'll rehearse what I'm going to say back. So it's a tool for planning and simulating. I like to think of it as like a Swiss army knife of the mind. It helps us do lots of things that are central to our ability to navigate this world optimally. To me, the crazy thing is that thinking is like breathing in the sense that you can do it consciously, but as soon as you stop doing it consciously, you begin doing it unconsciously. I mean, the wild conclusion here is that we learn from past mistakes and plan for the future to such a constant degree it can drive us bananas, but this clearly must have been an evolutionary advantage. Yeah, well, I I think it's a tool, and tools are only useful if you use them properly. Right. And so this ability to travel in time in our minds, as you're describing, to plan for the future, to learn from the past, to maybe just to savor a great moment or to fantasize like I'm traveling a lot nowadays, right? COVID, I'm thinking about the next vacation, pina coladas on the beach, hugs with people, all that good stuff. Like I'm strategically using my mind to to feel better, right? But tools can also be harmful. Like they can be used improperly. Like I often use the analogy of a hammer, right? Like a hammer in the right hands can create, like it built my house, right? But in the wrong hands, a hammer can be a destructive force. So we have this tool and we don't necessarily have a user's manual that we were born with, right? For how to use it. Culture gives us some information, but what's super cool about taking science and applying it to this domain is now we're using science to make sense of how this tool works, when to use it, how to use it. And that I think is super fascinating. It's interesting that you mentioned culture and the role that culture can assist our ability to use this tool effectively. Because right now we're in a moment in history where there's a, there's a lot of focus on mindfulness, being present in the moment. And at the same time, as you've said, the ability to time travel is a superpower of sorts. I mean, this, this ability to improve on our past failures and, and strategize for the future. Is there some sense in which an obsession with being in the present moment is trying to run against the grain of human nature? So I think being in the moment and mindfulness is great. There's fantastic data showing that mindfulness can have enormous benefits. 
But you do see, I think, in popular culture, the idea of being in the moment taken to a point that I think is, quite frankly, unattainable. That is, we should strive to always be in the moment. I don't think that that is a prescription that we want to give to everyone because I think there can be great value in being able to go back in time and forward in time in the way we've been describing. So I think the challenge that we all face is figuring out how to traverse time, whether it be going back or forward or being in the moment, how to traverse time optimally given the demands of the situation and what we want to do. Look, when I'm playing, uh, what do I play nowadays? Oh, when I'm doing my high intensity interval training, I want to be in the moment, right? I need to be focusing on the activity and the movement. I don't want to mess up. I can hurt myself. But in other times, I want to be able to travel back in time without getting stuck. And that I think is the key. The key is not to shut off time travel altogether because there's a risk that you may ruminate and feel worse. It's how do we figure out how to go back in time or forward effectively. And I think science has a lot to say about how to do that. Turning to something more fundamental, you say in the book, our verbal stream plays an indispensable role in the creation of ourselves. Meanwhile, neuroscientists sometimes talk about the notion that the self is a construct, that in fact, we contain multitudes. I don't think you address this directly in the book, but I'm curious to get your take. Is the sense of a unified self that our inner voice is creating and constantly narrating everything that happens around us. To some degree, is that a fraudulent sense of a coherent singular self that the inner voice is creating? No, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a fraudulent sense. I think it's a human sense of who we are. So in the sense that I, I do agree that the self is, is a construction. We are, we are constantly interpreting our experiences through different lenses and those interpretations shape how we think about who we are. And language plays a role in helping us do that. Like, you know, after a positive or negative experience, you know, I go over it in my head, often using language, like how I reacted and what, what does that say about me? What does that say about that person? And all that information is contributing to our sense of who we are. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we're one person. The self is complex. There's Ethan as professor there's Ethan as dad, there's Ethan as husband. So, but language is involved in, in, in helping shape those identities. And, and in fact, I tell the story in, the, in Chatter about a, a neuroanatomist who has a stroke that, that knocks out some of her parts of her brain that are involved in, in language. And you know, initially she describes this as a euphoric experience. Yeah. Finally, the voices in my head are silenced. No more worry, no more rumination. But what else happened? She stopped being able to plan and think about the future. And even more impactful, she lost her sense of who she was because that, that stream, that verbal stream that was so helpful in allowing her to make sense of her experiences went away. So words are powerful, not simply because of they help us communicate with other people, but words play a role in, I think, influencing how we communicate with ourselves and how we think about ourselves. It is extraordinary that we think in words and it's almost the water in which we swim. Um, I love the study that the British anthropologist, I think he was, Andrew Irving, where he had New Yorkers speak their inner monologues into a tape recorder walking down the street, which is kind of a wonderful thing to visualize. What did we learn from that, from that exercise, from that study? 
you know, first of all, hats off to, to Andrew Irving. What, what an amazing and creative idea he had to do this. So what do we learn? We learn um, that across the participants, Irving reported that the majority of their thoughts focused on negative content. And I think that's really interesting, right? Because if you think about the inner voice as a tool, it's being wielded often to make sense of experiences that we're having trouble understanding or processing. Like these are experiences, these negative events get us to stop and pay attention. And our inner voice often perks up when that happens to help us make sense of the situation. So this brings up another point that I want to emphasize, which is negative thoughts, like thinking negative things and and an inner voice that's filled with negative content, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. I think another place, another, another message we often hear is try to strive for positivity all the time. No, 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 no. Negativity in small doses is a good thing. We evolved the ability to experience negative emotions for a reason. So, you know, I, I tell people, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, the ability to not experience negative emotions. What's problematic is when those negative thoughts end up unraveling into chatter, which are the negative thought loops, mm-hmm. where it's not, my friend has cancer, how am I gonna help her and move on? And then you come up with an answer. It's, my friend has cancer, what if she dies? What if I have cancer? What if my partner gets cancer? And that captures the kind of cyclical nature of chatter that can be quite destructive. Yeah, when the record starts to skip and we get stuck in what I think of as the shampoo cycle, lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat, I think it's like a programming tech term for it, right? Yeah. And I think we've all experienced that. And among other things, it just consumes valuable time and energy, right? To just be running the same script again and again. But we run that script insanely fast. I think probably the single most astonishing assertion in your book is the idea that our inner voice speaks at 4,000 words per minute, which as you point out, this is a state of the union address every minute, which leads me to two questions. The first is, are you sure? (laughs) I mean, could they actually confirm this right? right? (laughs) And second, are we really listening to all those words? You better believe I I checked that reference 40,000 times just to make sure. So I found it astonishing too when I came across it. So let's put that statistic in perspective and try to help us understand how that's possible. So number one, we could think much quicker than we can speak. For one, we don't have to activate the motor processes that are involved in actually talking, right? So that strips away some time. That's still not going to get us to 4,000 words a minute though, right? So how do we get there? Well, we can think, and we often do think, in a compressed form, right? So we're not thinking in full sentences. We're thinking oftentimes equivalent to how we might take shorthand notes. And that gives us the ability to think at a much faster speed. We don't always think at 4,000 words a minute, but it speaks to, I think, what is often experienced as the frenzied nature of inner self-talk. Right, We often feel like our thoughts are pinging really, really loud and fast, and they're uncontrollable. That's a, a description that many people often provide when they're experiencing chatter. Like We feel like our thoughts are just running, and we can't slow them down. So yeah, it, it is remarkable. What was the second part? Of, did I answer the second part of your question? The second was, are we always listening? Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't know if we're always listening. Um, I think we're listening to it when it happens in short bursts. I think we are aware of it. but. I do think this, people often ask, like, how do you know, how do you know if you're experiencing chatter? And my answer is you usually know it when you're experiencing it. 
because there's a subjective element to it that it is so all-consuming that you're aware of it because you can't do anything else. Yeah. So I think when it takes that form, it is something that we do listen to. This sets us up perfectly for big idea number two. Talking to yourself can be helpful if you do it the right way. In 2012, a 14-year-old Pakistani girl received a terrifying message. The Taliban, a well-established terrorist group, was plotting to assassinate her. The Taliban would end up following through on their threat. On her way home from school one afternoon, a terrorist boarded the bus this young girl was traveling home on and shot her in the head. The young girl's name is Malala Yousafzai. Thankfully, she would go on to recover from her attack and two years later, become the youngest person to win the Nobel Peace Prize. When asked how she responded when she first discovered the threat against her life, Malala reported saying to herself, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? Then she answered herself, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. I'd like you to contemplate for a moment Malala's situation. She's just received the most frightening news imaginable. And what does she report doing? She talks to herself, but not the way most of us silently reflect on our lives in the first person. Instead, she talks to herself using her own name and you, words that we typically use when we think about and refer to other people. Many people wonder how they can control their chatter. One way to do so is to use distant self-talk, to coach yourself through a problem using your name and you, like you're advising someone else. This is exactly what Malala did instinctively when she found herself under threat. Research shows that it is much easier for us to advise other people on their problems than it is to advise ourselves. There's even a name for this phenomenon. It's called Solomon's Paradox, named after the Bible's King Solomon, who was famously adept at doling out sound advice to others, but floundered when it came to exercising good judgment in his own life. Distant self-talk capitalizes on this idea. Silently talking to yourself like you're someone else, using you and your own name, helps people take a step back from their experience and put their problems in perspective in ways that enhance their ability to perform under stress control their emotions, and reason wisely. Research shows this is true not only for adults, but children as well. These and other findings like it demonstrate how subtle shifts in the words we use to refer to ourselves when we introspect can influence how we think, feel, and behave, sometimes in surprising ways. I love this incredible letter that you have in the book that Fred Rogers, better known as Mr. Rogers, writes to himself, right? It's this extraordinary artifact. So he comes back to work and he says, he writes down on a piece of paper, am I kidding myself that I'm able to write a script? I wonder if every creative artist goes through the tortures of the damned trying to create, oh, well, the hour cometh and now is when I've got to do it. Get to it, Fred, get to it. It seems kind of funny to write something like that down on a piece of paper. Uh, what can we learn from this? Well, I mean, it's remarkable in the sense of it's, it's like a chatter artifact, right? I mean, what's amazing to me about that experience is it sure seems like this guy is consumed with chatter, imposterism, I'm a fraud, how am I going to manage? And then at one point something clicks and he just switches into now coaching himself like he's, it's like he's had enough with the chatter and he's saying, you know what? All right, here's what I would tell someone else. Just do it, Fred, get up, stop complaining and start doing it. It's the same thing that Malala Yousafzai, that example we started with. It's the same exact thing she does. She starts off in the first person. What would I do if the Taliban comes? Okay, Malala, take a shoe and hit him. It's what I did when I was at my wits end Mm. with that threatening letter. 
when I started thinking crazy thoughts like, do bodyguards exist for academics, right? <laughs> uh, Ethan, get a hold of yourself. You're, this is nutty. You're, you're acting crazy. And so here's what we don't yet know, which I find such an interesting question. What is it inside us that cues us at a certain point to spontaneously shift from I to using our name, from being in an immersed chatter mode to distancing like that? That is such an interesting question to me. And we're trying to get at that in lab. We don't have the answers yet. But what we do know is that when you use your name, it can help. And so I think that's empowering knowledge because it means you don't have to wait to stumble on this tool, which may or may not be in your repertoire for managing your mind. You can do it proactively, which is you know one of the things that I do when I'm getting worried or anxious about something. I'll just, all right, Ethan, what are we going to do? So I'm very deliberate about using that tool now based on the work we've done. Well, Ethan, thank you for giving me permission to talk to myself using my own name. As it happens, I've slid into this in my midlife, and at times I feel a little like Robinson Crusoe <laughs> walking around my islands. Rufus, <laughs> you really need to start flossing twice a day. And I'm happy to hear that it has an official name, Distant Self-Talk. Does this really work, do you think? I do. Um, you know, I've been studying distancing tools for, for a long time. I started doing it in graduate school. And the idea behind studying distancing was, was simple. If what chatter does is zoom us in on a problem really tightly, then being able to step back and see the bigger picture to distance should be useful. There are lots of ways you can distance, but I think language is a particularly efficient tool for doing it. If you think about words like names, right, which is what distance self-talk is about, when we use our name and, and second and third person pronouns to refer to ourselves, those are parts of speech that we almost exclusively use when we think about and refer to other people. And so it, it's almost as though as a species, we've stumbled on this mental hack, which is during times of stress, let me use my own name to talk to myself. It's a way of shifting my perspective like I'm giving someone else advice. And the research shows that that can be useful in a variety of ways from helping people perform better under stress, to feeling better, to thinking more wisely. It is interesting though, when we, when we look at the content of people's thoughts, when they engage in distant self-talk, it's not, don't worry, it'll be fine and you'll take a bath and feel better. It's often quite stern actually. You know, it's like, I, I often think it's like my wrestling coach is coming out to give it to me straight and he's coaching me and he's supportive, but there's a firmness to it, yeah. at least when I do. And I rely on this technique quite a bit. Come on, Ethan, get your act together. Stop messing around. Sit down and do your work. You know, that is, <laughs> there's love there and support, but I wouldn't describe it as ultra, ultra warm. So there's probably some value in being, in being able to be tough with yourself at times. But not too hard on ourselves, as you point out. And I love that Dan Harris says that the inner voice in his head is an asshole. You know, just take a step back. The most of your book is really about how we can get the inner voice in our heads to be more helpful and less of an asshole. Do you get the sense that a, like a large portion of, of our fellow humans are really struggling with negative self-talk? This is a multi-trillion dollar problem and that, that it really is not an exaggeration. So let me break it down. When this inner voice turns into chatter, and we start spinning and ruminating and worrying, that affects three areas of our life that I think are central to our experience of 
this world. Number one, it impacts our performance and our ability to concentrate, right? So if we are consumed with chatter, you can't do your job. And whether that job is pitching for a major league baseball team, as I talk about in the book, or crunching the numbers as as an accountant or data analyst, right? Like we only have so much ability to focus at any given time. And if all of that mental hardware is devote or software, I should say, is devoted to chatter, there's not much left over. Then let's go to our social relationships. One other thing we know is that when people experience chatter, it often causes friction in their relationships, and it does so through a variety of pathways. One thing that happens is we often feel compelled to talk about what's bothering us with other people because we want their help, but we often keep talking about it over and over and over and over again. We talk over our friends and loved ones, and that can push them away. We're often also sitting at the dinner table with our friends and loved ones, and they're sharing things about their lives with us that they want to just connect with us, but we're in our own head and we're not listening. Then you go to our health, our physical health. People often say stress kills. That's not exactly true. Stress on its own is a really good thing, right? The ability to to quickly respond to a threatening situation. What makes stress harmful in a physical sense is when our stress response goes up and then remains chronically activated over time. That's what exerts a wear and tear on our body that predicts things like cardiovascular disease, some forms of cancer, and so forth. And chatter is in part what allows those stress reactions to persist because we experience a stressor, yep. we're insulted, we're rejected, we're pissed off, but then we, we use our mind and language to replay those stressors over and over and over and over again in our head. We don't sleep. So work, relationships, health. It doesn't get much bigger than that as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, those consequences are pretty dire. But yeah. If you allow the broken record to continue looping, right? You're killing your productivity, you're alienating friends and family, and you're submitting yourself to chronic stress. Rufus, you're doing great. I know you want to keep talking to Ethan, but you got to take a quick break. When you come back, you can ask them about those wild studies that show folks who've experienced trauma are better off keeping their feelings to themselves. How can that be? That runs counter to everything you've ever been told. Think of all the things you never should have blurted out. Whoa, cool it, Rufus. Get through the ads, boy. Then you'll get to ask Ethan whatever you want. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, Health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Two of the most surprising studies in the book show that after traumatic events, like specifically 9-11, survivors who shared their painful emotions with others did worse over time than people who kept their feelings to themselves. Do I have that right? Yeah, there's research in the book that I talk about which shows that sharing emotions um, sometimes makes things worse or has no beneficial effect at all. And you know, it speaks to, I think, a very important topic, which is other people and the role that they play in helping us manage our chatter or not. And you know, in popular culture, there's this very strong idea that when we experience strong emotions, we should just vent those feelings, express them, get it out. 
The science shows that it's not as simple as just finding people to talk to. Other people can be an incredibly powerful tool for helping us manage our chatter, but they can also be a vulnerability. And so, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book was really bring the science to bear to explain how talking goes right and how it can go wrong. The important things to keep in mind are that there are essentially two things we're looking for when we go to other people for support with our chatter. One is, is empathy and connection. Like there is value which comes from the fact that there's someone else I can share my experience with that is willing to listen to me and show they care. There's a strong connection that's formed and that feels really good. But in and of itself, that doesn't do anything to help me with the chatter, right? Just because I feel connected to you doesn't help me reframe the experience, get a different view on the event right? Make sense of what's bothering me in ways that allow me to button the problem up and move on with my life. Other people can help us do that second thing, but what's required there is for that other person to help broaden our perspective. So if you come to me with a problem, I ask you about the problem. You tell me about it. We talk about your emotions, but then at some point when the timing is right, you know what, Rufus, um, that sounds like a terrible experience you had during the podcast interview. But you know, you've, you've interviewed a lot of people at this point, right? So you've had other experiences and how did you deal with those? You got over them. Or, or I might say, oh God, I, I've had experiences like that. And here's what I've done to deal with these kinds of situations. So there are ways we can nudge those we're talking to, to help them see the bigger picture, to broaden their perspective. And the best kinds of support are ones that do both of these things. The person you're talking to not only gives us empathy, shows they care, but also helps broaden our perspective. And simply venting doesn't do that. And it's why it can get us in trouble. This goes against so much conventional wisdom. I think it's so interesting. You talk about the hydraulic model of emotion. I love this term. And the idea here, I think, is that we need to release our strong emotions like steam to relieve pressure. But this model is misleading. And this goes all the way back, I think, to Aristotle, who talked about catharting one's emotions. And then subsequently, obviously, Freud most famously put this forth. Yeah, it's a great model. It's a great story. It's wonderful. It's just not true. It doesn't capture human experience. Instead of a hydraulic model, what we've learned is that when it comes to emotion, there's a principle called accessibility that describes how the mind works. And you could think about it as, as like playing a game of dominoes where one negative thought activates another negative thought, which activates another negative thought, right? That's how the mind works. So when I'm unloading how I feel to you, I'm not just letting it all out, I'm actually keeping the negative flame alive. And so, you know, there are studies which show that when we get into what we might call the technical term for one of these venting sessions is called a co-rumination session. So you're asking me how I felt, you're telling me you felt the same way and this, and we just go back and forth. You and I, our friendship gets better. We feel a really tight connection. But what happens is the negative problem stays active. The negative feeling stays active. So you feel like, yeah, I got a buddy, but you hang up the phone and you don't feel better about the situation. You feel worse. And there are longitudinal studies which show that when we, the more likely you are to co-ruminate about something, that predicts like worse feelings over time, more depression, more anxiety. So it's a tricky thing because- On the one hand, we do want to connect with someone else and share, but at some point we need to stop sharing and start problem solving. And I think knowing about how these exchanges work, on the one hand, for the person seeking support, 
it can be empowering because I know now I'm very deliberate about who I, who I seek support from. Like people who are really helpful, who show that they care, but help me put my experiences in perspective. I don't go to friends and family who just get me to rehash what happened and validate my feelings. Like that alone doesn't make me feel better. So there's an important take-home, I think, for the person seeking support, but there's also an important take-home for the person providing support, right? The science can help us become better advisors to others. You know, I have always heard that people don't actually want advice. They want you just to actively listen and empathize. I had a wonderful conversation last year with a woman named Kate Murphy, who wrote a fantastic book called You're Not Listening, which was another Next Big Idea Club selection. And wonderful book, so much wisdom and insight in that book. My conclusion coming out of it was that I should try to subdue my impulse to give advice, yeah, <laughs> which I often have, unless I'm specifically asked for it. But you land in a different place. I think your conclusion is intriguingly kind of divergent from the cultural moment, I would say. And I'm interested to hear what you think about this. I mean, I think there's an argument that in this cultural moment, we're erring on the side of co-rumination right? That, that the most important thing is validating everybody's experience and deep empathy. And you seem to be saying that it's also important to help people put things in perspective. I think it is important to put things into perspective. I think you want to do both. Empathy is a great thing, right? We want to be empathic with one another. But when we find the conversations just spilling into these thought loops, like the external manifestation of chatter, we don't want to reinforce those. I do agree, though, that there's an art to doing this and there's a time and a place to provide the perspective broadening advice. I don't think you want to do it unless you are asked for support. And I think people often come to us, hey, hey, can you help me work through this problem? That's the time to do both the empathy and the perspective broadening. In cases where you are not explicitly asked for advice, I think there are dangers and there are documented okay. dangers in, in doling it out. And so, so that's when I think, um, you know, to what, what would the science say about those times? That's when you want to help invisibly, invisible forms of support. So mm -hmm. uh, th doing things like if I'm seeing my wife really struggling, uh, you know, with work and kids and other stuff, there are ways I can try to help alleviate her chatter without drawing a spotlight to the fact that she's struggling because that could make us feel inadequate. And so, you know, like doing things as simple as like taking care of dinner, or the dry cleaning to ease her burden, like that can be helpful. Or if like a student of mine is, is really struggling with a problem, they haven't asked for help mm -hmm. and I don't want to make them feel insecure. You know, maybe I suggest, that, hey, there's this talk on campus. Let's go listen to it. You know, this seems really interesting and relevant to all of us. Those are ways of getting the person information, but without shining a spotlight on the fact that they need our help. Yeah, the invisible support was my favorite piece of marital advice in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I think there's a slight risk that it, the invisible support might not be detected at all, but ho hopefully not. Well, I think it's a great insight. Okay, so Ethan's first big idea is that when the voice in our heads runs amok, it produces chatter. That's the negative cycle of thoughts that turns introspection into self-flagellation. His second idea is that we can break through that chatter namely by treating ourselves objectively and deploying distant self-talk. Now, in his third big idea, Ethan shares another tool we could use to make sure that voice in our heads is a wise sage and not a cantankerous drunk. Rituals. Creating order quiets chatter. Rafael Nadal is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Although he's well known for his speed and power on the court, there's another feature that defines his play. 
the quirky rituals he engages in. Take, for example, his behavior during a French Open championship match in 2018. As he left the locker room, he walked towards his bench, making sure to carry a single racket in his hand. When he arrived, he took off his warm-up jacket as he faced the crowd and bounced energetically back and forth on the balls of his feet. Then, when he was done, he placed his ID card on his bench, making sure his picture was facing up. His rote behaviors didn't end once the match began. During breaks between play, he sipped his power drink, then his water, always in that order. And when he was done, he returned both bottles exactly where they were before he picked them up, to the left of his chair, one in front of the other, aligned diagonally with the court. Nadal's struggles with chatter aren't a secret. What I battle hardest to do in a tennis match, he once said, is to quiet the voices in my head. And the quirky rituals he engages in provides him with a useful tool for doing just that. It's a way of placing myself in a match, he explains, ordering my surroundings to match the order I seek in my head. Nadal is far from alone in trying to manage his chatter by controlling his physical surroundings. Science shows that many people reflexively engage in similar behaviors when they're struggling with chatter. While some people turn to rituals, others focus on tidying up or organizing their spaces. Importantly, research shows that engaging in these behaviors, as long as they're not taken to an extreme, can provide people with relief. The way this works is through a process called compensatory control. In essence, when our thoughts are racing and feel disorganized, as is often the case when we experience chatter, we can compensate for that by controlling other areas of our lives and engaging in the kinds of rote behaviors that characterize many rituals or organizing our spaces provides us with a means of doing precisely that. Well, as a tennis fan, I love the Rafa Nadal example. You know, he, he used to have long hair, of course, in his earlier days. And to this day, even though he now has short hair, he does this motion of putting the strands of his hair behind each ear. He's like ordering non-existent hair, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and pulling his shorts from his backside, which I don't, I'm not sure you referenced that in the book. <laughs> but it's fascinating that a lot of top players do these highly ritualized moves. And you say there's a, there's a logic behind it. Rituals are like a, they're like a chatter cocktail. They help us manage our chatter through a variety of different pathways. One of the things they do is they help us reestablish the sense of order when we feel order lacking in our head. So it's often the case that when we're experiencing chatter, we feel like we're not in control of our thoughts. They're controlling us. And um, one of the things we've learned is that you can regain a sense of order and control by ordering your spaces around you. So, you know, anecdote from from my life, when I was writing the book and was struggling to get a paragraph or sentence out or worried about a deadline, I'd find myself going over to the kitchen and doing something very out of character for me, which is cleaning it up. And so I clean all the pots and put them away neatly and scrub down the island. And, you know, I joke that my wife, I think used to like wanted me to experience more chatter because the kitchen was never so clean. But this was something that I just naturally did and it helped me feel better. Putting things in order helped me feel like I had more control. And that's one of the reasons we think rituals help athletes. Like rituals are highly structured routines, right? We do them the exact same way each time. And that's a way we can give our sense of self of order and control. They also do other things, of course, like rituals can also... They're often linked with meaning. They often have cultural significance, though not always. 
which allows us to transcend the things that are bothering us by thinking about this ginormous group or tradition that we belong to. So, um, you know, rituals are commonly prescribed by cultures around the world for what you do when someone dies, like yep, death, quite right. big source of chatter, right? Like we do remarkably different things in different traditions, but we do, we always do rituals to deal with like death. Birthing rituals too. Birth can be a very chaotic chatter producing times when we have kids. There are birth rituals across different traditions. And so, um, you know, I think in, in popular culture, we often think about rituals as being synonymous with obsessive compulsive disorder and a bad thing. Yes, rituals can be taken to an extreme and like any tool if taken to an extreme can be harmful. But if you step back and think about it, rituals are an ancient chatter fighting tool that have been around with us for a very long time. And the science shows they can have real value. You know, that's such an interesting observation that the rituals we have around birth could exist partly to help us deal with some of the challenge and trauma of the birthing process, which I've always, I've always thought of as more of a celebration. Maybe the rituals we have around birthdays might help us deal with some of the, <laughs> the second half of your life, the, the traumatic, gotcha. traumatic impact right. of your birthdays. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's interesting that rituals that we invent for ourselves would be as effective as they appear to be, right? Because it's a little like giving yourself a placebo or tricking yourself. I mean, you'd think that the fact that you know you're doing it would cause it to be less effective. Well, so there is a placebo. I'm sure there's a placebo component that can add to the benefit of rituals because we know, as I talk about in the book, how powerful placebos can be. But there is research which shows that people benefit from rituals even when they don't believe that they provide benefits. And part of the one interpretation of how that can possibly be is, you know, goes back to the fact that you're still ordering things. You're putting things in a certain sequence. So you are experiencing the sense of control when you're engaging in a particular ritual. Coming up after the break, Ethan says another great way to silence chatter is to get out into nature. And if you can't do that, then looking at a screensaver of some greenery is a surprisingly close second. Welcome back to the show. So Ethan has told us why we're all so prone to chatter and how we can use distancing and rituals to overcome it. But my favorite piece of advice in his book is that we should seek out things that are vast and difficult to explain. I asked him if this is effectively a form of distancing, a way of rendering ourselves small before the cosmos. Yeah, I, I do think that there's a connection there. And um, when you're trying to understand something that you can't understand, something vast, that's like the ultimate perspective broadener, the ultimate distancer, if you will, right? Because you're seeing like, oh my God, my problem seems so tiny when we're contemplating the universe like, or, or a skyscraper, or even for me, a plane flying. Like I still experience awe when I contemplate how we figured out to put people in a tin can and, you know, shoot it up in the air and then land it. Like, I can't contemplate it. It's hard for me to do. And, and when, you know, having that a feeling of awe can really just put our own problems in perspective in a very powerful way. You know, it's one of these ways that we can regulate ourselves from the outside in. And I find that to be a concept that is both powerful and, and really fascinating, this idea that tools exist not only inside us, 
for managing the conversations we have with ourselves, but all around us too, like in creating order in our environment, seeking out awe-inspiring experiences, like tools are all around. We just need to know where to look. And so that that, that is a mind blower to me. To use a very technical term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm with you on the airplanes, Ethan. It, it is just astounding that that works, that the whole thing works. Yeah. Well, as a psychologist, you're, of course, familiar with the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book Flow. Sure. He concluded that people are their happiest precisely when they're in a flow state, which is really when chatter is silenced, right? Mountain climbing, playing the violin. Yes. For me, it would be skiing or mountain biking through the woods, these serene chatter-free zones. And it's actually interesting to think how the lengths people go to to you know to get into these into these chatter-free zones. You know, illegal drug use and contorting themselves into crazy yoga poses would be other extreme acts. Does mm-hmm. this overlap with the kind of awe that you're talking about, this kind of deep immersion? I don't know that I would describe it as as a state of flow per se. So, you know, I think the state of flow that you're describing is where our abilities and what's required of us like perfectly gel. And so we're, we're like performing at an optimal level, but without over trying and time passes. This I think is a more reflective state when we're experiencing awe. Like when I'm gazing up at the stars at night and thinking like, are there, you know, are there life forms out there on the billions of planets? Like how can there not be if there are that many? Like yeah. it, it's this inability to, to process what's happening. And I think it's that inability to understand this vastness that makes us feel small. So I think it is a little bit different. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think since, since both the skiing and mountain biking are in the beautiful outdoors in these extraordinary settings, I feel like I may get a little dollop of awe along with the flow. <laughs> you know, they might get a little d- d- double whammy, but ah. know, maybe that's how it feels. And, and these these things are often bundled together, these tools. Like, so I think I talk about 20 yeah. or so tools in the book, but you know, like we get awe from nature, but we also, we also get a recharge, a mental recharge when we're in a green space through other mm-hmm. mechanisms, right? Um, we know that sometimes like when people are, traveling in time in their heads. They're also using distant self-talk. So sometimes the tools blend together and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think in daily life, we often need to use multiple tools at any given time sure. to, to really feel better. Well, and you alluded to the power of nature and kind of green space. Um, as a city dweller, the studies you cite about the importance of green space for mental health is a bit discouraging. But at the same time, it's extraordinary, right? Yeah. There was a study in Toronto that showed that having just 10 more trees on your block had a health impact equivalent to being seven years younger or earning $10,000 more per year. Remarkable. But we don't have to live in the woods, right? Like a little bit of green space, even looking at pictures of nature can have the same effect. Is that right? Yeah. So um, there does seem to be a dose response that the more immersed you are in nature, the more benefits you derive. But we know at the bottom end of the spectrum, getting a little bit of nature is, 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 is better, significantly better than getting no nature at all. And so looking at videos of green spaces or pictures or, you know, I've actually re-engineered my office at home. So I'm facing green space. Um, I mean, it's a wild literature. You see this over and over, these findings that more green space exposure has these mental, uh, mental benefits. And so, um, and it's a very low cost, way of improving your mental life. So 
That's right. And there's an astounding study that identified that people living in an apartment complex were profoundly impacted by what side they faced. Yeah, this is a classic study um, done about 20 years ago by Francis Quo. And um, basically, people were essentially randomly assigned to different apartments in a public housing complex in Chicago. And what they found was that the, the people who had views of green spaces were, were managing their problems and better and thinking more efficiently than the people whose windows faced cement structures and, and you know, urban playgrounds. Really, really just, just wild. So, um, you know, the, the take-home lesson is if you can look out onto nature or put that desk plant on your desk, like, go ahead and do it. It's wonderful as a scientist when large-scale randomized controlled studies are done for you yes. over <laughs> over large periods of time. It's less wonderful when you're the person who's assigned to the wrong block and don't have the positive impact of looking at it, you know, beautiful trees. You have an explanation for why this is as it is. You, uh, you lay out a theory that has to do with the relationship between our voluntary attention and our involuntary attention. The natural world and great music, art, you say, captures our involuntary attention because of what you call soft fascinations. I love soft fascinations. What a wonderful phrase. How does stimulating our involuntary attention quiet our chatter? So when our voluntary attention is our ability to focus hard on something, and it's easily depleted, and it's what chatter is consuming because we're focusing on the problem over and over and over again, and... Um, and there's only so much of it that that we can do. And when we're over-focused on the chatter, we don't have the attention left over then to think about other things like our work, our relationships. And so the idea is that when we're strolling through nature, and I should say a safe form of nature, not a form of nature where there are potential predators that are going to lurch out and get you. But when you're walking through a park and you can essentially let your guard down, what happens is our attention just gets naturally drawn involuntarily drawn to this interesting foliage and shrubbery around us that lets our, our attentional reserves replenish. And that's one of the reasons why we think nature can be so restorative, because it's like, you know, putting the computer on sleep mode if the computer yeah. is your head, letting our energy restore so that, okay, when, we, when we're done from the walk, now we can approach the problem fresh and anew. Interesting. I like that. Well, thank you, Ethan, for taking time out of your raising of daughters and teaching of students and distant self-talk to be with us today. This was fascinating. It was a, a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Want to hear two more big ideas from Chatter? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Ethan's book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Join us next week for a fascinating conversation with my sister. She stops by to chat about her brilliant book, The Fate of Food, and why climate change is increasingly a problem you can taste. If listening to this show provides a nice respite from the chatter in your head, you may be wondering, what can I do to help the Next Big Idea team get the word out? I'll tell you what you can do. You can give us a five-star rating, if you feel so inclined, and a review. We read every one. Don't believe me? Our most recent review was from Cerritos Guy. Such fresh views, opportunity to think differently, 
I truly enjoyed this podcast. I really appreciate those who created it. Continue on. Thank you. Well, Cerritos guy, thank you. Special thanks to Ethan Cross. Grab a copy of Chatter at your favorite local bookstore. There are a bunch of other tools in there we didn't have time to explore on today's episode. I get invisible support from our executive producers, Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos, sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Look at that, distant self-talk. See you next week.